millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go die and go to hell. I'm going to go to hell. Down from that one one works for emergency. Oh, this is Sandy. The pretty one works. Talk to the road. Send the police. Send the police. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, I wear a male car with his hands to a coffee table and just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would do it, whose life would be. I harm someone each time I kill someone to be an enormous amount. Especially at first, uh, enormous amount of horror, uh, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraband. And we do Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. What will you be looking into this week, Barney? Well, Tara, in the small village of Fornham St. Martin in Suffolk, England, the scorched body of Dawn Walker was found by the River Lark in 2005. Who would murder such a loved 37-year-old in such a heinous way? That's a question we ask ourselves every week. (laughs) Yeah, what have you got for us, Tara? Today I'll be talking about one-legged rapist, murderer and extortion artist Michael Sams and Stephanie Slater, a courageous woman who was able to survive eight days in his captivity. Oh, that sounds like there's a bit of drama there. Oh, yeah, and I love a survivor story. Yeah. I mean, come on. And he had only one leg. He did only have one leg, that's true. Well, sometimes that's all you need. That's all he needed. Now, of course, this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. Okay, Tara, it's time for you to get murdery. Michael Sams was born on August 11th, 1941 in Keithley, West Yorkshire. In England. He spent his early life there before seeking adventure on the high seas by joining the Merchant Navy when he was 20. After three years in the Merchant Navy, he realised his lack of gills and fins and the fact that he had two legs meant that he was better suited to dry land. Makes sense. Mm. So he moved back to Keithley and found work as a lift engineer. The sea was angry that day, so he needed elevators. Yeah. Yeah, Well, if you can think of a better way to placate the sea, I'd sure as hell like to hear about it. But something was missing for Michael. Maybe it was glamour. Maybe it was excitement. Maybe he was sick of holding back his basest urges. In the early 70s, he became intrigued with the petty criminal activities of some of his caddish friends. There was one man in particular that he greatly admired as he claimed to have piss-owned and outwitted the police. I would like me some of that sweet, sweet notoriety, Michael thought to himself. Hmm, fair. That's fair. Is it? No. So to stick it to the establishment, he started stealing cars. That'll teach him. He also made some false insurance claims. In 1976, the diabolical mastermind spent a few months in prison for this very behaviour. Despite the fact that he looked like a less attractive Ronnie Corbett, Michael was married three times. I I think Ronnie, Ronnie Corbett's a bit of a dreamboat. Yeah, so, I mean, he's less attractive than that. Oh, uh, yeah. Because I'd how see. could he be more attractive? Yeah, Ronnie Corbett's pretty hot. Absolutely. Uh. It's good night from me and it's good night from him. <laughs> 
He had two sons by his first wife, Susan Oak, but the marriage broke down shortly before he was sent to prison. While in prison, Michael was diagnosed with a cancer that resulted in him needing to have one of his legs amputated. Now he really was indeed missing something. He was missing something very important, for it seemed that the leg he got removed was one part of him that had held him back from becoming a vile rapist and murderer. Oh, that's not good. He lost his good leg. Yeah. Now, Barney, we've both recently watched the movie Skyscraper, which stars The Rock. In it, he plays a very buff and heroic man, they cast against type, who is missing the lower part of one leg. If only this movie had been around in the 70s, perhaps Michael would have had a better role model. Yeah, that's a fictional movie. You know that, don't you? No, I'm pretty sure it's all true. It's a documentary shot in real time. (laughs) It is. Time for a really quick gross aside, actually. Um, When we were watching Skyscraper, I was making a beef roast. I paused the movie to turn it over, and as I was doing so, I noticed that the length and shape were similar to the missing part of the rock's leg in the film, like the the below the knee. Oh, the leg nub. Yeah, and I thought to myself, great, we're eating the rest of the rock's leg for dinner. Yum. Nah, I didn't tell my partner this because sometimes you just have to keep some things to yourself to maintain your feminine mystery. Is that how you do it, Tara? Yes, by closing my mouth. Doesn't really work in podcasting, does it? No. <laughs> no. Trust me, she closed her mouth then. It was it was it was it was an odd experience. It would have been nice for a, you. It was yeah, rarefied air came out of her nose. <laughs> After Michael's release from prison, he struggled to get his business running smoothly again and eventually ended up selling it. He went to work for the Black & Decker company, which led to him starting his own business in the early 80s selling power tools. And sandwich makers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But all the power tools and sandwich makers in the world couldn't save his second marriage and he went through another divorce. But don't worry, he got married again soon after. Having the studly aesthetic of a young Ronnie Corbett will always see you win out with the ladies. Yeah. It's a fact. I look like Ronnie Corbett and look at my leg stump. No? No. (laughs) (laughs) That didn't work? No, the ladies love it. Uh, (laughs) Would you like to touch my stump? I mean, if you'd gone in that direction, I would have been on board. Michael and his third wife lived in Sutton-on-Trent, Nottinghamshire, next to the East Coast Main Line. This was important for Michael, as he was a trenchcoat-wearing, obsessive train spotter. Their flat was a shrine to this sexy hobby. Michael's model railway even had its own room, and the house was filled with books and photos of trains and engine nameplates. Fun! That sounds cool. Yeah. I'd like that, actually. Would you? Yeah, I would. You want to you have your own room for your train set? I do like trains. I don't have any, but I, I would like to have some. Well, you heard that, listeners. Let's uh. flood Barney with trains. Now, you'd think a man who is fortunate enough to have a never-ending supply of wives and his own special train set room would feel like a lucky man indeed. But no. While he was spotting trains, he was brewing a disgusting and violent plan. On July 9th, 1991, it was time to put this shit show into action. Michael drove to a local red light district and picked up an 18-year-old sex worker named Julie Dart. He took her back to the grotty warehouse that was adjacent to his tool shop. At some point during their interaction, he blindfolded her, chained her up, and shoved her into a small coffin-shaped box that was chained to the floor. He then left her there and went home to his wife and his train set. Oh, a bit of train spotting. It kind of got really dark there really fast. I know. We thought Begbie and Sick Boy were harsh, but no. Yeah. During the night, terrified and freezing, Julie tried to escape by smashing her way out of the box. She managed to do this, but she couldn't find a way to get out of the room. Michael had wired an alarm to the box so he would be alerted to any Houdini-like behaviour. He drove the several miles back to his warehouse, overpowered Julie and chained her to a roof beam. The next day, he made her write a letter to her boyfriend demanding a ransom of £140,000 and saying that if he didn't pay it, he would never see her again. That doesn't seem very smart. Yeah, look, if her boyfriend had that kind of money lying around, it's unlikely that Julie would be a sex worker, isn't it? Well, that's right. 
Michael knew this blackmail attempt couldn't help but fail, and that's the way he wanted it to go down. This was his practice round. Ooh, it's going to get worse. It always gets worse. Yeah, okay. You know this by now, champ. Right, I'm ready. After Julie had written the note, he beat her head in with a hammer. He wrapped her in a sheet, tied it with rope, and put it in a bin. Nine days later, after the smell became difficult to conceal, he dumped Julie's body in a field. On Friday, July 12th, Julie's boyfriend received the ransom letter. Baffled beyond belief, he showed it to Julie's mother, Lynn, who notified the police. Michael had also sent his own ransom letter to them to ensure that they believed that it was a real thing. Oh, there was another letter. Oh, okay. yeah. He, he just needed a pen pal and none of this would have happened, man. Michael set out super complicated plans for a ransom pickup several days later. However, on July 19th, Julie Dart's body was discovered in a field in Lincolnshire. I mean, it's not a good idea to kill the person you're holding hostage for ransom and have her body found. None of this is a good idea. I mean, don't get me wrong. Michael continued to send messages to the police. One stated, and I quote, Prostitutes are easy to pick up, and I won't spend any more time in prison for killing two instead of one. He later claimed to have kidnapped another sex worker, but police could find no evidence that any had recently gone missing. Michael also sent threatening letters demanding £200,000 from British Rail, or he would derail an express train. To show he was serious, he hung a block of sandstone from a bridge in Staffordshire in an effort to smash up a train. The complicated ransom delivery trail was supposed to begin with a coded telephone call to Crewe Railway Station. Although Michael ended up abandoning this plot, police later found a list of telephone numbers which matched those of call boxes at Crewe Station in his wallet. On Wednesday, January 22nd, 92, Michael put his kidnappy raping pants on again. Using the name Mr. Southwell, he arranged to meet 25-year-old real estate agent Stephanie Slater under the premise of viewing a property in Great Bar, Birmingham. After showing him around several rooms, Michael attacked Stephanie in the bathroom. She said, In one hand he was brandishing a homemade knife with a blade about 9 inches long. In the other, a long flat chisel about 12 inches long. Stephanie fought as hard as she could, ending up with a deep cut on one of her hands. He eventually overpowered her, shoved her into the bathtub and tied her up. He blindfolded her, shoved some cloth in her mouth and marched her to his car. He then drove her to the warehouse where he had murdered Julie Dart and made her speak into a tape recorder to beg her employer, Shipways Estate Agents, for a £170,000 ransom. Still blindfolded, he stripped Stephanie, handcuffed her, then forced her onto a mattress. She said, I felt horribly exposed as I stood there naked and blindfolded. I could hear him breathing shallowly what seemed like only inches from my face. How terrifying. Uh, it doesn't get better. Really? Yeah, it and, and yeah, definitely terrifying. Sorry, I don't know why I was like, it doesn't get any better. <laughs> Fuck gonna, you, Barney. Yeah, it doesn't get any better. Yeah, but you like we think this is the worst bit? It's oh, really? Not. It's not. <laughs> he violently bit Stephanie's face, neck, and breasts before raping her. After the rape, he made her wear men's clothes. He said, I hope you're not claustrophobic. When she didn't reply, he added, Good, because you're going in a box inside a box. These are words no one ever wants to hear. No. With her hands and feet cuffed, blindfolded and gagged, he made Stephanie wiggle into a narrow coffin-shaped box. He then put the box she was inside in a wheelie bin that he lay on its side and padlocked it shut. So he, because um, Julie had actually kicked her way out of a box, he thought putting it inside the wheelie bin meant that it was impossible to do so. Yeah, it probably would be. Yeah, um, so he just left her there for the night. Stephanie described her ordeal in her book, Beyond Fear, My Will to Survive, which she published in 1995 in the hope of helping others to better understand the point of view of female victims of violence. She said, 
The first night of my captivity, I was crushed into a narrow box, far too small for me, placed inside another box. He told me there were electrodes running alongside my body, which would kill me if I tried to move. And there were wires. I could feel them and boulders placed on top of the box that would crush me if I tried to get out. It was a bitterly cold January night. I lay without moving all night long and passed from being rigid with cold to collapsing with cold. It was like lying in a deep snow. I was sure I was going to die. Well, you're not wrong. It did get worse. Yeah, oh, yeah well, I mean, <laughs> I don't lie about that. Uh, so I don't wow. lie about much. Michael would get her out of the box every day and give her food and water to wash with. Stephanie said that when she was allowed out of the coffin for food, she talked about herself to Michael in an effort to humanise herself to him and increase her chances of survival. Very smart. Yeah, yeah. big time. Mm. Very intelligent woman. On one occasion, when he led her out to eat, she found herself begging him for a hug. She said she was so desperate for human contact during that time that even Michael's horrible arms were bearable for a second. This was also part of her clever plan to make herself seem human to him as well, though. That's right. And, and to try and make herself harder for him to kill. Mm. I understand. Yeah. She said, I was desperate for reassurance, even from him. I held my arms out toward him. It'll be all right, won't it? I'm going home, aren't I? Please say I am, she later recalled. His ransom demand of $175,000 was agreed to by the police, as was his demand that the money should be dropped off by a work colleague of Stephanie's on Friday, January 31st. Police had also recorded calls that Michael had made to Stephanie's parents' home to organise the ransom, so they had his voice on tape. Good. Because he had murdered Julie Dart before her, police did not expect Stephanie to make it out of her ordeal alive. But she did. She fucking did. Well done, Stephanie. The police planned to follow Michael after he picked up the ransom, but he had anticipated this and devised an intricate getaway strategy to give them the slip. Oh, clever. He was able to escape undetected with the money. Surprisingly, he kept his promise and he drove Stephanie back to her parents' home that evening after holding her captive for eight days. Oh, wow. I know, mostly in a coffin-shaped box inside Ugh. a wheelie bin that has been, like, um, padlocked. That's so horrible. I know. Uh, so I, I did wonder why um, why he didn't just leave her in the room. But the, the room um, was adjacent to where he was selling tools and she could actually hear him talking to customers. Oh, wow. But she was gagged the whole time as well. Yeah. I think he only, like, left Julie Dart chained up like that overnight because, you know, there weren't any – he wasn't working during that time. Yeah, right. Just okay. to sort of explain why those were different. Yeah. Within 12 hours of her release, Stephanie was made to speak at a press conference, even though she was traumatised beyond belief. Police later acknowledged that this was an error of judgement on their part. Hell yeah. Yeah. In an effort to apprehend Michael, the police made public a tape recording of the kidnapper's voice on the TV show Crime Watch. Michael's first wife, Susan Oak, who had divorced him 15 years ago, contacted police after recognising his taped voice and seeing an artist's impression of him on the show. Michael was traced to his workshop where both Julie Dart and Stephanie Slater had been held captive and was arrested the next day. Good. Good. Out of the £175,000 ransom that was paid for Stephanie's release, police located £150,000 buried in a field by using ground-penetrating radar. Ooh, clever. Yeah. The remaining £25,000 was never recovered. Probably got himself a sweet train set with it. Yeah. Maybe a, a golden leg. Oh, the man with the golden leg. Ah. Forensic evidence was gathered that proved his culpability for Julie's murder. He went to trial in 1993. After being positively identified by Stephanie, Michael admitted the kidnapping but denied the murder charge in court. But the extortion letters that he'd sent about Julie's ransom and his attempt to blackmail British Rail proved to be his undoing. They gave a chain of clues, spelling errors, fibres under sticky tape and postmarks. 
The police also found deleted files on his computer containing fragments of detailed ransom plans, all involving railway stations or disused railway lines. And he's 286 running Windows 3.1. Oh, if he was lucky. Back in 93, I guess, yeah. Mm -hmm. In July, Michael was convicted of Julie's murder and Stephanie's abduction and sentenced to life in prison. No recommended minimum term was reported at his trial. Stephanie was serving a life sentence too, though. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. She was tormented by the memories of those eight days in captivity and could no longer bear to be alone. She also could no longer relate to who she was before her horrifying ordeal, saying, The only similarity I have with her now is the name. That's the only thing that we share. There's nothing left of Stephanie Slater in me. She died just after I was released. She was such a strong character. She was very pretty, and I'm not. She used to look ever so good and go to pubs with her friends. She was courageous and brave. I shy away from all that now. I keep to a very small circle of trustworthy and lovely people. I need them. Sometimes I can relax and giggle about something. Occasionally I can be brave for a short time. If somebody needed help, I'd be there for them. But I couldn't be like she was. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. It's so poignant, isn't it, Tara? I mean, you know, how brave and courageous she was, but, yeah, she's not that woman anymore. I mean, it broke her into pieces. Yeah, completely. Um, yeah. So sad. I know. Hmm. Really. After she'd been freed, Stephanie found that many people recognised her from TV appearances and press conferences. In Birmingham, where she'd lived all her life dickheads would come up to her in the street and say things like, seen any good houses lately? Oh, God. Don't you want to headbutt them? Just, uh, like, go back in time and punch them out? Yeah. Why the hell would you harass her? Like, really? Feeling she had to get away, Stephanie and a friend went to live on the Isle of Wight. Stephanie said, My way of thanking God for giving me back my life is that I appreciate nature much more and I try not to take from the earth. Sometimes I sit outside and watch the skies turn from sunset to darkness and listen to the power of the waves and the sea and think, why have I never appreciated this properly before? Wow. I think we could all take something from that. Oh, of course. After Stephanie published her book, Beyond Fear, My Will to Survive, Michael Sams decided it was time to fuck her shit up again from his prison cell. He said her version of events in the book were false and claimed that during the time he held her hostage, they had a secret love affair and that she consented to the rape she accused him of. That's despicable. (sighs) She said... When I heard he said we'd had a love affair, I had a sort of breakdown. I started crying and shaking. It was like being raped all over again. The man is evil through and through. He lied throughout the court case. He's saying this because he craves attention. Now, she didn't actually tell anyone about the rape for for, um, quite a few months. Okay. Yeah. So um, what she, she explains that by saying... I kept silent about the rape for months afterwards. I felt so ashamed and I thought it would kill my mother if she knew that he'd touched me. She didn't want to put her mum through anything else by even telling her what she'd gone through. Hmm. It's devastating. It really is. Stephanie stated that the experience had left her feeling dirty all the time. She said, I used to have a bath twice a day, shower three times a day, scrub myself until I bled. I had very long hair that had to be cut off because he'd had his fingers in it. Stephanie used this horrendous experience for the betterment of others by working with police to advise them on how to deal with kidnapped survivors. She also worked with the survivors themselves to help them recover from their ordeals. Michael continued to be a waste of oxygen after he was imprisoned, attacking a female prison officer with a metal spike and holding her hostage in his prison cell. He received an additional eight years to his sentence for this. He carried out the attack partly to focus attention on his claim that the prison service had prevented him from suing Stephanie for accusing him of raping her. 
He was also angry about a refusal to let him sell his paintings for charity. Yeah, charity wants your paintings. After this attack, a police spokesman said of Michael, Sometimes what he does is for fame. During the latest incident, the Rose West trial was on, and I suspect he didn't like being knocked off the front page. He has nothing to lose by playing his games. He's got nothing else to amuse him. Michael is also a vexatious litigant who was awarded £4,000 in damages when the prison service lost his artificial leg when moving him from one prison to another. He also bought a civil case because he thought that his prison bed was too hard. Boo-hoo, Goldilocks. Now aged 77, he is among the oldest and longest-serving life sentence prisoners in England and Wales. And what happened to Stephanie, Tara? Well, this is, this is sad. Um, Stephanie died of cancer on August 31st, 2017 at the age of 50. She didn't have a long struggle. Um, she passed only 11 days after her cancer diagnosis. Her best friend, Stacey Kettner, who moved to the Isle of Wight with her, said, I know that she never truly got over the events that changed her life so dramatically in January 1992. It's been an honour and a privilege to be Stephanie's best friend. A police spokesman said, West Midlands Police would like to pay tribute to Stephanie's courage and bravery over the years and for the work she did in helping police officers and victims by sharing her experience. Oh, wow. What a story. Yeah, Stephanie. She's not here and he's still alive. I guess we already knew life wasn't fair, right? Yeah. Well, Tara, I guess it's uh, time. It's time? Yeah. It's true crime nerd time. Oh, good. Hey! True crime nerd time. True crime nerd time. True crime nerd time. I love true crime. True crime nerd time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book. Movie, TV series, documentary, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. Are you itchy, Tara? You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it and we'll read it out. And we've got a doddler here from Shannon Weems. Uh, she lives in Melbourne. It's about the true crime documentary, The Iceman Tapes, Conversations with a Killer, that was released in 1992. It's about Richard Kuklinski... He was a devoted husband, loving father and ruthless killer of over 100 people. He really loved to murder anyone who even vaguely pissed him off. He started out killing just for fun but realised he could make some pretty penny by becoming a hitman for the mafia so he ended up murdering for fun and profit. This powerful documentary features one of the most vivid and disturbing interviews ever recorded. It was taped behind the walls of the prison where Kuklinski is serving two consecutive life sentences for multiple homicide. Watching someone smile while they explain how they have tortured and killed people is more scary than any horror movie. Kuklinski speaks in the monotonous drone of a man who has numbed himself with remorseless brutality. He describes numerous killings in graphic detail, expressing no regret whatsoever except having a pity party for himself over deceiving his family. Kuklinski wasn't nicknamed the Iceman because of his fondness of Top Gun or because he's a cold-hearted killer, but because he used to freeze his victims to make it impossible for investigators to know their real time of death. I highly recommend the Iceman tapes to anyone fascinated by what goes on inside the minds of prolific serial killers. And as an added bonus, you can watch this in full on YouTube. Oh, they're normally Netflix, aren't they? Well, thank you, Shannon. From Melbourne for uh, submission. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. That's great. All right, Barney. Time for you to get murdery. 
Well, Tara, this is actually a patron request for Chris Lay, who actually knew one of the players in this story. Actually, did he? He did. This murder sent shockwaves through the local community. This was something that happens in the city, they would say, not in our quaint little Suffolk village. Fornham St. Martin is a sleepy hamlet on the eastern edge of Suffolk. Its biggest claim to fame is that it spawned Bob Hoskins. Oh, the not Danny DeVito guy. Yeah, the Roger Rabbit guy. Mm-hmm. He's cool. It's also notable for the Battle of Fornham. This was one of the most significant battles in English history. It took place on Fornham Park and the surrounding area in 1173. It is estimated that 10,000 Flemish mercenaries were slaughtered and lie beneath the fields and woodland. That's a lot of Flemish mercenaries. Mm. It's now a place loved by locals and visitors alike. In the middle of the Suffolk countryside, Fornham St. Martin has a population of around 1,300 people. So that's pretty small. That's tiny. The village has one pub, the Woolpack, but no shops. It has a church, playing field, village hall and phone box. Its only school closed in the early 1950s. Near the Lark Valley Drive, a popular smock windmill used to stand. It collapsed in 1927. Well, that was a long time ago, ma'am. It really is. It's a pretty ordinary place. So it sounds like a lovely place where nothing happens. No. On February 4th, 2005, a mother and daughter out enjoying an early evening stroll along a secluded river path made an horrific discovery when they stumbled across the body of a woman while walking their dog. The first thing that struck police was it's not often you see a murder investigation where there's been so much damage done to the victim. Yeah, this is not an easy story, Tara. No, it, it doesn't sound like it's going to be fun. What they initially found just off the walking path on a grassy area five metres from the bank of the River Lark was a partially clothed body of a white female. The only clothing she had on was a royal blue fleecy jacket. On it was the logo for a local printing company, Abby Hine. This item of clothing had been put on after she was burnt. Because she was found on a winter's night, the area was cordoned off with police stating that a proper investigation would be carried out the next morning. It didn't take long for detectives to locate the victim's place of work thanks to the company logo on the fleece. This helped them identify her as 37-year-old Dawn Walker. Dawn had been reported missing by her boyfriend Kevin Nunn earlier that day. The police then had the unenviable task of breaking the news to Kevin and Dawn's family. Her sister Kersey raced around to her mother's after receiving an urgent call. Here she learned that police had found a body beside the river and they thought it was Dawn. Kirsty wondered if maybe she had taken a fall or perhaps had a heart attack. Dawn was the oldest of three sisters and the younger two couldn't believe they'd never see her again. Initially when Dawn was found there were the obvious indications that her body had been burned but there were also signs of some severe injuries to her head. Dawn's head had also been shaved, as well as her pubic area. There were some injuries to her leg, lacerations to her Achilles tendon, and a length of reed had been inserted into her anus. Okay, so this is sounding a bit like torturey punishmenty, right? Yeah, it's yeah, it, it's a pretty dark story. There was also evidence that at some stage she had been immersed in water. Detectives knew it was going to be a really difficult investigation, especially for forensics, as Dawn had burns to at least 95% of her body. This made the task of formally identifying her extremely traumatic for her family. Dawn's younger sisters, Kirsty and Sheena, were asked to take on this unimaginably upsetting task. We just saw this burnt face, no expression, no eyebrows. It was like looking at a black sheep's face. We walked back out again, sat there and argued with ourselves. Sheena said it can't be her, couldn't look like her, who would do that? In the end, the only way Dawn could be formally identified was by a tattoo on her shoulder. Dawn and her sisters used to play at the location where they found her body as children. I mean, it was a totally safe place just to go and wander off on your own as a child. It's quite shocking, you know things don't happen like that round here. Kirsty Walker told media. Detectives continued to examine the scene in a desperate hunt for clues. Around 100 metres away and on the other side of the river, they discovered a bizarre collection of items. Evidence of partially burned clothing, some duct tape, ashes from a fire, as well as a pair of sneakers, 
a kitchen knife and a bag containing gloves, a hat and a torch. That's a lot of evidence. It really is. But how does all these things fit together? We'll find out. These items were located near steps which led down to a dike that ran a short way alongside the river. On these metal steps were the remains of some more duct tape, some of which looked like it had been burnt away. This could have been the site where Dawn's killer had burnt her. Due to the severity of the burning on Dawn's body, the post-mortem had been unable to determine exactly how she died. It had, however, thrown up another detail. There were small traces of sperm on Dawn's leg, but more on that later. The pathologist couldn't even tell if Dawn was already dead by the time she'd been burned. I would hope so. It had been speculated that Dawn had died from asphyxiation or cold. She had been exposed to freezing conditions prior to death. She had been immersed in water for some time and not just in the river Lark, so drowning and hypothermia were not ruled out as possible causes. Like most murder investigations, Suffolk detectives started with victimology, looking into Dawn's life, where she worked, what her hobbies were, associates, friends, boyfriends and her family. Dawn lived alone in a dead-end street on the edge of Fornham St Martin and worked for a nearby printing firm, but her real love was the great outdoors. She adored rock climbing, scuba diving, horseback riding and was at the gym every other day. So she was a bit of a fitness freak, you know, yeah. she, and she loved to run. And, okay. Yeah. Mm. Her sister Sheena described her as being a bit of a loner. She was always doing her own thing. Dawn just liked to go off and explore and do what she liked, scuba diving being one of them, in the hope that eventually she could move away and become a teacher. Okay, she wanted to be a scuba diving teacher. Yeah, she was ambitious. Yeah, Mm. that would be a very interesting job. When investigators started looking into Dawn's personal life, they discovered that she'd had several boyfriends in the past few years prior to Kevin Nunn. Ah, who hasn't? I've had tons of boyfriends. They focused in on this as an early line of inquiry, eliminating them as suspects one by one. Officers had already made contact with Kevin, Dawn's current boyfriend, who reported her missing after she failed to turn up for work two days running. Dawn had been dating Kevin for two years after meeting him at the gym. He lived in a nearby village and was a sales representative for a welding firm. Kevin was able to help them fill in some of the blanks. He told them that he'd seen her at the gym two days before her body was found. CCTV at the gym caught Dawn at about 9.30pm. She was just heading out. Kevin told police he saw her there and they agreed to have a conversation about their relationship back at Dawn's house. Oh, those don't usually go well. No. I think we need to have a talk. They usually start like that, don't they? Oh, no. When you need to have a talk, you're in trouble. Yeah. He also stated that when he met with Dawn later that night, she had ended their relationship and he headed home about 10.15 p.m. Motive. Also, Barney, um, after this, we we need to have a talk. <laughs> really? <laughs> nah. About it. what? <laughs> unicorns. Oh, I love unicorns. I'm looking forward to that chat. Okay, so she broke up with him. Yeah. Mm. So the investigation centred on trying to close the window of when Dawn was last seen alive on CCTV, 9.30pm February 2nd, and when she was found dead by the River Lark at 4.30pm February 4th. Sounds like there was there was like this lark that was by the river that found her. It's like Mama! River Lark Go away, motorbikes. Fucking motorbike people. Oh, goddamn biking club around the, the corner. They must have the smallest cocks in the world to have such loud motorbikes. Oh god. They just So I don't even need to bother with the words. They're just Yeah. It's like a balloon. Yeah. It's like a balloon going down. Isn't everything? Police were able to close the gap further when Kevin went on to tell them that he received a voicemail from her at around 5am. It came through on the morning after he'd last seen her. He said he didn't actually listen to the message until about 7.30am when he woke. Kevin said it was dawn. She said that she loved him and she sounded upset. He said he called Dawn and couldn't get any reply on her phone and he tried throughout the next day to try and find her. Now, there's a record of this call, but Kevin told police he accidentally deleted the message, so there's no proof of its content. 
Kevin then received some phone calls from Dawn's work saying, Dawn's not here, do you know where she is? He initially told them Dawn was unwell, but the next day he told them he didn't know where she was, but he would try and find her. Okay, he said she was unwell, but he hadn't spoken to her to know that she was unwell. Flags! Yeah, there's some red flags here. With Kevin helping police piece together Dawn's last movements, the investigation was given further assistance when an important witness came forward. Builder Darren Davey, probably known as Dazza, probably, had been out walking the day before Dawn was found and had come across the bag and sneakers next to the step. He also noticed the remains of a fire and a few feet away from that was a petrol can cap. Could this mean that Dawn had been killed in the five hours between Kevin receiving the voicemail from her and Darren finding the bag next to the burn site? Police continued their examination of the items Darren had seen. There was certainly no DNA evidence that they could utilise which pointed to an offender, but they were eventually able to discover some clues from the tape found by the steps. Police believe Dawn was at some stage sat down and taped to the railing of the steps and then set on fire. They reached this conclusion by mapping the burning on the body. This is crazy. Oh, it gets crazier. Oh, God, it always does. There was no sign of a struggle and no sign of forced entry at Dawn's home. The house was extremely neat and tidy. What police did find was duct tape very similar to the kind that was found at the burn site. They also believed a petrol can was missing from her shed. One of the questions police asked themselves was, who's got keys to the house? Detectives believed Dawn had been killed by someone closely associated with her and somebody who knew the area. Yeah, well... um, Makes sense. It does. Also, there's... There's overkill, there's tortury stuff. It's really, really sounds like someone she knew to me. Yeah, it does sound personal, doesn't it, Tara? Yeah, and the cutting off of the hair, like it, it sounds like a punishment, you know? In earlier questioning, Dawn's boyfriend, Kevin, had told police he'd gone looking for Dawn down by the river the afternoon before she was found, as it was an area where they enjoyed walks together and was just a couple of miles from her home. But this was the same area that a witness had seen the bag and burn site at 10am that day. When police interviewed him, he said he had walked through there and didn't see anything. It just gets fishier with Kevin, doesn't it? Well, detectives found that that very unlikely. Yes. He must have seen the bag because he walked within 10 yards of it. Well, yeah, especially if he's there looking for her. So he's keeping an eye out for things, right? That's right. Yeah. The police investigation had so far thrown up no significant leads, but a press appeal made at the start of the investigation was about to pay off, Tara. Okay. Eight days into the investigation, a witness came forward having seen something unusual outside Dawn's house around 5am the day before her body was found. The witness, Dawn's neighbour, Penelope Dale, said she was going to work very early in the morning, which was unusual for her. She was driving past Dawn's house when she saw Dawn's boyfriend. That's what she said because she didn't know his name, but she knew what he looked like. Yeah. Um, Dawn's boyfriend was there carrying something like a roll of carpet or a huge bag, and there was somebody at the other end of this. The person at the other end of the bag sort of looked in her direction, dropped the bag, and then ran off. The person she described as Dawn's boyfriend just stood there under her, her headlights in full view, and was staring at her as she drove by. That's pretty damning. It really is. Another one of Dawn's neighbours had made a statement saying that he saw someone he believed to be Dawn's boyfriend and Dawn arguing outside Dawn's house, even though Kevin had described their split as amicable. Hmm. Kevin's story was starting to fall apart. And over the following weeks, details about his obsessive behaviour came to light. One witness said she saw Kevin loitering outside Dawn's house and looking through her letterbox the afternoon before her body was found. Police started to focus their attention on any associates that he may have because they also got reports of somebody else being with Kevin and Kevin being seen entering Dawn's house with another man. This person turned out to be a close friend and colleague of Dawn's, 37-year-old Nigel Hill. So he worked in the same printing firm. Okay. 
His fingerprints had been found in Dawn's house and there was a possibility that he could have been the mystery figure helping Kevin Nunn with the large item into the back of a car. Following these eyewitness statements, police arrested both men. Kevin was taken to one police station and Nigel Hill to another and they were interviewed at the same time. Strangely, Dawn's sisters had never heard of Kevin Nunn. Although Dawn was a private person, this was unusual. She'd always bought her boyfriends to meet her family. Okay, I wonder, I wonder what's with that. Hmm. Other inquiries by police reveal why Dawn may have ended her relationship with Kevin. Dawn met an old boyfriend that she'd known for a long time and she told people at work and some close friends that she was considering having another relationship with the old boyfriend because she felt the relationship with Kevin had come to a sort of a natural end and she wanted to move on. Ah, well, if Kevin caught wind of that, there's definitely motive there. Detectives were suspicious of Kevin's version of events, especially the phone message that he claimed he received from Dawn early in the morning the day after she'd been last seen alive. Pathologists had concluded that Dawn was already dead by the time this voicemail came through. The inconsistencies in Kevin's story were starting to show, but there were more revelations to come, Tara. Mm-hmm. Kevin admitted that while they were together, he had a key cut to Dawn's house without her knowledge. Not cool, Kevin. Not cool. As Kevin was being questioned, forensics searched his house. There was plenty of Dawn's DNA there, but due to their relationship, this was to be expected. However, during the search, a fragment of freshly cut hair was found in a bin in Kevin's bathroom. So... Tara, remember when Dawn was found, her hair being cut off? I do remember that. It was her hair. Okay. You also don't normally go to your boyfriend's house to cut a fragment of your hair off. No. Did she have a fringe? Did she cut it herself? I have questions. Look, apparently she was quite proud of her hair. She had very long red hair. And um, and yeah. then it got all cut off. It seems like <sighs> someone was trying, trying to, to punish her. her. And also trying to make her less attractive, perhaps. Yeah. Now with a mounting weight of evidence against him, Kevin Nunn was charged with the murder of Dawn Walker. Nigel Hill was also charged with an assisting an offender. With Kevin in custody, it gave the family the chance to mourn Dawn's passing properly. Five months after her death, her funeral took place. Oh, wow. That's a really long time for them to wait. It really is, isn't it? On October 3rd, 2006, 20 months after Dawn's murder, Kevin Nunn's trial began at Ipswich Crown Court. There was a significant amount of public interest in the case. Well, a media circus, really. And for the family, the trial offered hope of finding out exactly what happened to Dawn. Kevin Nunn entered a not guilty plea and throughout the trial continued to deny the charge. Early on in proceedings, the judge threw out the case against Nigel Hill, citing insufficient evidence, but the trial against Kevin continued. We'll talk more about Nigel later. Okay. Okay? Kevin Nunn's manner as he protested his innocence was professional. He didn't get angry. He was almost businesslike and acted appropriately given the circumstances that he was in, but steadfastly maintained his innocence. The prosecution set out their case of how and why Kevin had killed Dawn. It was alleged that Kevin Nunn had murdered Dawn on February 2nd or 3rd, 2005, after a row outside her house. In police interviews, he admitted not only to having a key cut to her house, but also to stalking her. Witnesses testified to the kind of man he was. Ex-girlfriends and also his ex-wife said that he was very possessive and controlling and also there was an incident where he had followed Dawn. The jury also heard claims from the prosecution that Kevin had lied about receiving a voicemail from Dawn just before 5am. The day before her body was found, they also heard a witness say they saw Kevin Nunn and another man carrying a large object in the back of their car. It's pretty damning stuff. I, th- I reckon that's the slam dunk, that witness there. Yeah, well, especially since um, they recognised her boyfriend. That's right. The neighbour said she clearly saw them, and the jury found this quite compelling. Prosecutors set out that when Kevin presented himself as a concerned boyfriend, it was, in fact, all an act. It was all lies, and he was trying to deflect suspicion away from himself. 
Kevin told the court that footprints consistent with his boots near the Riverbank burning site were there because he'd gone looking for Dawn the day after she disappeared. How convenient. Mm. Returning to the scene of the crime. The prosecution presented a bizarre series of events. The cause of death was never identified, but over a 36-hour period, they said, Kevin Nunn undressed Dawn Walker, shaved off much of her hair, smuggled her body out of the house, burned it by the river, redressed it, put it in the river, removed it from the river, hid the body, possibly in a water tank at her house, before enlisting the help of one of Dawn Walker's friends, Nigel, who Kevin Nunn had not previously known, to smuggle the body out of her house before leaving it at a different spot on the opposite bank of the same river. I mean, if you put it in that mm. way, it seems very unlikely, doesn't it? Yes. But there's a lot of compelling circumstantial evidence to back this up, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it sounds ridiculous when you put it like that. The defence tried to blame one of Dawn's ex-boyfriends for the murder, claiming that Kevin had nothing to do with it. They put forward that the real killer was a man called Leon May, with whom Dawn had had a relationship and who lived in the same street. Leon May had been violent towards Dawn on several occasions. Dawn had told friends and family she was fearful of his behaviour. He had even spoke to Penelope Dale, the witness who supposedly saw Kevin and Nigel carrying the rolled-up carpet. Remember her? Yep. Before the murder, Leon May told Penelope Dale how he would commit the perfect murder. His description bore some resemblance to what happened to Dawn. Wouldn't she have recognised him, though? Well, yeah, she, she said it was um, Kevin. Yeah. Yeah. But Leon May was alibied by his current girlfriend. Well, it seems you'd have to ask, like, why now as well if they hadn't been seeing each other for years. That's right. It seems like a stretch, doesn't it? Well, um, the jury agreed with you and didn't buy the defence's argument. And after learning of Kevin Nunn's obsessive and vindictive nature throughout the six-week trial, the jury reached a verdict of guilty of murder. When a verdict was read out, Kevin just sat there. He looked straight ahead and didn't blink. Oh, that's just what a murderer would do. <laughs> Sentencing Kevin to a minimum of 22 years, the judge told him, you decided that if you could not have her, no one else would. The mystery figure seen assisting Kevin remains unidentified, and as Kevin still maintains his innocence, the case will never be closed for Dawn's family. Oh, he has control over everyone in the world in the palm of his hand. Yes, until the day he confesses to what he's done, he'll never set any of us free, Dawn's sister Kirsty told media. Outside the court, a statement read out by Dawn's mother, Jean, said, The murder of my daughter was a great shock which will remain with us for the rest of our lives. Our case has finally been heard and Kevin Nunn has been found guilty. It was an horrific murder and he has shown himself to be a vindictive, deceitful and evil man who has clearly been a danger to unsuspecting women. Don's sister Sheena described Kevin Nunn as a perverted criminal who has shown no remorse or guilt. You disposed of her body in such a disgusting and undignified way, she said. I wish upon you all the darkness you have inflicted on our lives for the rest of your life. That's some pretty powerful words. Yeah, it really is. Now, you probably think that's the end of the story, but there's more. There's, there's always, always more, more, isn't there? Yeah. Nine years later, in 2015, actor Tom Conti, known for his roles in Shirley Valentine and Friends, and Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, mm-hmm. gave his backing to a campaign to clear Kevin Nunn. Despite a Supreme Court judgment in June the previous year that the correct decision had been made. Tom Conti said there were many exhibits that could now be examined due to the advances in forensics and there was no indication Kevin Nunn had previously been violent. All the evidence against Kevin was circumstantial, he added. Kevin Nunn has always claimed semen samples discovered on Dawn Walker's body could not have been linked to him as he had undergone a vasectomy. The samples were insufficient for DNA profiling at the time of trial, so they were kept till science had moved forward, and now it has. Scientists are now confident that a cold case review will reveal the truth about this murder, but police, CPS and the courts have blocked access to the exhibits. Why would they do that? Yeah, I don't know. Um, Maybe the semen, well, obviously it's not Kevin's, but maybe it was Nigel's. There seems to be a lot of people 
that still think Nigel has something to do with it. What? Though then again, he'd only just met. He, he didn't really know Kevin. Yeah, also it's possible that it had something to do with Kevin, but also it could have been someone else's semen because he didn't act alone. Yeah, that's right. Ah, that's frustrating. I really want to know. There's some speculation that um, the semen that was on her body she picked up in the gym by going into the men's change rooms and sitting on a towel or something. I find that unlikely why would too. She, why would she do that? Uh, apparently she did that once. Maybe there was... She couldn't use the women's or something. Yeah. Okay. I would really, it would be great to know that the person being punished for this was a person who had actually, you know, committed the crime because you don't want them out there. I think Bill Conti's got it wrong, actually. I think that, look, there is circumstantial evidence against Kevin there, but it's pretty compelling. It's really compelling. It's very strong. How unlike an actor to not be a lawyer. Yeah. Maybe he played one once. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. So, yeah, what a hell of a story. And thank yeah. you to Chris Lay for uh, um, pointing that out to us. Wow. Hmm. I think it might be time for an Aussie As. What is that again? Aussie As are tales of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially Australian flavour. So I'd like to thank Holly Marie Dunning for alerting me to this magnificent incident. Uh. Police have charged a 26-year-old Canley Vale woman for giving herself a five-finger discount from a supermarket in the North Shore, Sydney suburb of Chatswood last week. Surely this is not just a shoplifting tale. There must be more. No, no. Just a shoplifting tale. I don't know the woman's name. Like, what should we call her? Like, Debbie? Debbie's a good name. Narelle. Sherelle. Rochelle. Sharon. Shazza! Let's call her Shazza! call her Tara. I'll call her... Fuck you. Police were targeting shoplifters in a cloak and dagger operation in the hoity-toity suburb on Thursday the 6th of September. While ice addicts were headbutting old-age pensioners to their heart's content, police observed Shazza into the supermarket. Police allege that they watched Shazza as she took a delicious hot meat pie off the shelf. They were more than a little surprised when they witnessed her place the hot meat pie down the front of her knickers. Shazza, no! If it can burn the shit out of your mouth, it can burn the shit out of your minge, love. Well, that's right. It's what I tell my kids. If it's too hot for your fingers, it's too hot for your vagina. Yeah, well, rightly so, and you have boys. Oh, yeah. Shazza then waddled to the confectionery aisle. After taking a long Captain Cook at the chocolate bars on display, our girl Shaz stuffed four Cadbury twirls in her bra. She then scampered from the supermarket without attempting to pay for these delicious snacks. Oh, outrageous. Police confronted Shazza moments after she left the store. Though she initially denied their accusations, she must have got sick of having a meat pie steamed vag and a bra full of melting chocolate. After repeated questioning about the bulge in her pants, Shazza let her fingers do the walking and produced the hot meat pie from her undies. Then, like a magician, she pulled the twirls from her bra saying, Abracadabra, you fucking pigs! <laughs> Actually, she she didn't say that. I just made oh, that really? up. Oh, no. pretty good. <laughs> she pulled him out of her bra. She didn't, she didn't right. say that. <laughs> yeah, voila. <laughs> yeah. She was charged with shoplifting and will face Hornsbury local court later this month. Now, the judge better hide the gavel because, you know, Shazza, she could nick that in her knickers toot sweet, couldn't she? She could. Yeah. So there you go. That's the tale of... Shazza well, and the well, meat pie stealing it, thing. It, it was more than a shoplifting story. It had it had extra stuff. No, all she did was shoplift. Well, yeah, no, but I don't know. It's the way you told it. It was great. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Barney. I appreciate your appreciation. Oh, well, people love your Aussie asses. I, I enjoy them as well. People love your Aussie asses. I think they're shit, but some people <laughs> seem to like them. Yeah. So thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. If you'd like to support us, visit our website. If you just want to buy us a drink, there's a PayPal donate button there too. I am thirsty, not enough donations. Well, well, well we had one from um, my uh, mate Chuck. Oh, Jake. Oh, Jake. Jake bought the drinks this week. Jake Fucknaski. <laughs> yeah, I was calling him Jack Fucknaski. <laughs> Jake Fucknaski. Well, Jake is Jake. And I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban or some kind of hologram that sort of looks like her. I wish. And we just did some bloody murder. Don't forget to review us on iTunes or our Facebook page. And, of course, rate and subscribe. It does really help us. 
Join our Facebook group, Bloody Murder Podcast, if you wanna. The Fan Bam. Ah, we love them. And follow us on Twitter and Snapchat and Insta. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for news, galleries, more episodes, and merchandise, including shoes and our range of scents. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. So, Tara, you know if you eat the bananas before they, when they're green, that's like, that means you date people a lot younger than you? Uh, that's what it means when we say it. Yeah, well, my partner used to, when younger, she used to date people oh, younger than her. Oh, she loves the taste of green bananas. She does, but now she likes the taste of older bananas because I'm older than her. And um, she's calling me bunny, bunny black banana. Oh, you're the black banana. And she, and she said, I'm so black as a banana that she bit me on the bench and she had plans to make banana bread with me, but she'd forget about that and just toss me in the rubbish. Ah, uh, yeah, because you got just too gross. Nah, I'm, 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 I'm at the end of a life of a banana. Look, it makes sense to me. They had, they had the intercom on in the room and they kept lying that it wasn't on and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. <laughs> really? It does? <laughs> kind of. I stopped feeling like puking and now I'm just really sleepy. Oh, really? You got mm. a full beard there. I know. I'm going to... Um, have you ever known me to like have a full beer and not want to drink it? But there were more renovations to come. Yeah, they're going to fix up the bathroom. <laughs> Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.